Amen. judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both flesh... Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Caleb. Mm-mm-mm. I knew we were in for it when we picked to go through the book of James. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, when I was younger, I used to hate it when older pastors would give young men aspiring to the ministry this particular advice. They'd say, if you could do anything else in the world, do it. And that kind of bugged me because I always felt like, oh, nice way to throw some cold water on some zeal, right? And not only that, it bothered me because I'm like, how, who do you think you are that you know the mind of the Lord for this poor young guy who's zealous, who's in love with Jesus, and wants to serve him in his church? Now, but the problem is, as I've gotten a bit older and I have a few decades of ministry under my belt behind me, I find myself giving the same advice. As a matter of fact, Greg just stepped out to do me a quick favor, but I remember telling him that. He was like, I don't know, I might be called to the ministry. I said, can you do anything else? (laughs) Now, why do I give that advice? Is it because what I suspected about the older ministers when I was younger, maybe I've become cynical? Is it because I've gone through some rough times in serving Jesus in my calling as a pastor, a preacher, and a teacher of his word? And um, I just want to protect others from having to go through what I went through? No, that's not the reason. I give this advice because 
Two things in particular. First of all, if God has really called you to the ministry, nothing I say is going to stop you because God will continue to pursue you like he has all his other servants in the past until you finally give in. Look at what he had to do to Jonah. You will go into the ministry if you're called. Second reason is when it all comes down to it, so many men, unfortunately, go into the ministry having a wrong idea of what the ministry is all about. And I want to I wanna make sure that when folks feel that they're called to the ministry, when men feel this, young men, that they really know what they're getting themselves into. See, this is what they think of. Because, hey, I used to be a young guy myself. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, right. But this is what they think of, preaching to great crowds. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And everybody's listening to me. Really neat. Or maybe leading Bible studies. Visiting healthy families. (laughs) Baptizing their children. Performing weddings. And then then I I hear people say this. I love that people come to me for advice. It feels so good. You're like, I like to be like Mr. Miyagi. You know, the wise guy that everybody comes to. But they don't answer the call with an understanding of what it really means. It means chasing after the lost who don't want to be found. Right? It means loving those who are often very difficult to love. It means counseling those who don't take your advice. How often is a pastor, pastor, we're desperate, we'll do anything you say, and you give them the counsel, you give them advice, and they come back the next week or the next session, and, and they start going off on their problems, and say, whoa, 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 did you do what I did last time? Well, no, we didn't do that yet, but and you're like, oh. It means rebuking, it means correcting, it means encouraging patiently and gently those who are often not very gentle and very, not pa- and very, and very often not very patient. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but not everyone is very appreciative of your care for their soul. As the Book of Church Order puts it, considering uh, when it's speaking about elders in the church, our book of church, or that is the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, it says this, all those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. In other words, just as all Christians are called to, to, to do things out of love, when it comes to elders in the church, when it comes to leaders in the church, when it comes to uh, pastors in the church, we especially are held to that high calling as our very job description. I like to remind young leaders who are aspiring to be pastor teachers, you will be living in a glass house. You're going to be under a microscope. Your family will be under a microscope. Liberties that others in the church can easily take, you're going to have to do without for love's sake. You don't have that luxury. And just in case all those reasons I just answered, uh, uh, just gave aren't enough to make someone pause and pray and think it through very seriously before they answer a call to pastoral ministry in the church, James mentions the main reason that not many of us should presume to be teachers in the church. And here's his answer. 
because we who teach will be judged more strictly. And the one area that James points out is the very area that usually attracts men to the ministry. Teaching. That's right. He's back. James, is for those of us who've been going through the book of James, he's back on the subject of tongue control. And of course, the people who have to be the most diligent in controlling their tongue are those who have to do a lot of talking because that's their job. To teach, to preach, to speak, to say a lot of things, to lead through words. Teachers in the church. So we who make our living teaching, preaching, rebuking, correcting, and encouraging, exhorting, counseling, equipping, and instructing, we of all people need to take the Bible's warning about the tongue deadly seriously. The truth is, all believers do. But if all believers are called to watch our tongues and to control them, as James said earlier in his book, right? he talked about uh, genuine religion. He says he who does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, and he's speaking to everybody, his religion is half good. No, he says, worthless. And if that's true for everybody, then it's especially true for leaders. So we need to take some time this morning. It may not be our favorite topic. It might not be the one, oh, you know, you might not want to download it when you get on. Oh, I wonder, let's hear a sermon on tongue control. But this is one that God tells us we need to hear in order for there to be peace and health and blessing in the church of Jesus Christ. So let's take a few moments this morning to sit at our Lord Jesus' feet as he speaks to us through a servant, James, about one of the main ingredients of pure and undefiled religion that God our Father accepts, and that's tongue control. And I want to say this, although it applies especially to those who are going to be teaching mainly in the church, it's going to apply to all of us in the household of God through faith in Christ. So here's what I want, want you to see. I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. That's this. Not many should presume to be teachers in the church for the following three reasons. I tried to boil it down for us this morning. Following three reasons. Number one, those who teach will have a stricter judgment. Number two, those who teach will be put at greater risk. Right? I'll show you that more. James will show us that in detail. And third of all, and this is the real last hammer blow. This is like Thor's hammer going, boom! And that is no one can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. All right, those are the three reasons. Let's take a look at the first one. Stricter judgment. We just read it in verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Listen, this is what James says. He says, being a teacher in the church is no joke. Instead of thinking of it as a position of power, as a position of prestige or honor. You should be looking at it, James says, as a sobering call to service that carries with it a much higher level of accountability than others. Listen, when I was in Baltimore as a pastor, I know we had this man who had been attending a church, our church, just for a little while, maybe a month or so, a couple months, and he wanted to come and talk about possibly becoming a member. And I remember I just did an interview with him, and we were talking about gifts and talents, and he said, he just pointed to the pulpit, he goes, that's where I want to be. And that right away gave me reserve about where he was at. In other words, he was looking for a position of what? Of power, of prestige. You know, that's not where you start. How did Jesus serve, right? 
God come in the flesh. What does he do? He takes off the outer garment, ties it around, and starts washing feet. This man was power hungry. He had the total wrong idea of what being a pastor is. The phone calls and all hours of the night, right? The care for your flock. The, the, the struggle and the pain of, of watching people's lives. Sometimes people spike in their own marriages, right? Praying with them and crying with them because family members are going astray and things like that. But in particular here, what James is really hitting on is that we are going to be held especially accountable for every word we say. You want to get behind that pulpit? (laughs) Just remember, you're going to be looking Jesus in the eye someday, and you're going to have to give an account of your teaching, your preaching, and your advice. James is just following his master, his older brother, and his Savior. Matthew 12, 36-37, this is what Jesus said. But I tell you, that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Since the call to teach carries with it by definition the speaking of words on a regular basis as one's vocation or job, it places the risk level through the roof. In other words, when it says, The pastorate, it should have a sign under it that says, enter at own risk. You with me? And James goes on to explain why teachers will be judged more strictly. As we examine these verses, um, don't get the idea. Let me say this real quickly. Don't get the idea. You can go to sleep if you're not a teacher in the church because this doesn't apply to you. Because as a matter of fact, this completely applies to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because notice what he says. Teachers will be judged more strictly. And what does that infer? But we all will be judged by what we say. Right? And we just quote, I just quoted from Jesus. He said everybody will be judged by our words. So although verses 2 to 12 especially apply to those whose calling is teaching, it applies to all of us. So the first reason we will be judged more strictly and then we're gonna, that's the second thing I want to point out from this text, is because we all stumble in many ways and using our tongues regularly puts us at greater risk. That's the second thing. So you didn't think I'd get to the second point that quick, did you? Second thing, it puts us at greater risk. Look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Perfect there, the word in the Greek means mature, fully mature. You've come to a place of full maturity. You know, you know, immaturity with the tongue is when, when you go to shopping with your kids. I'm not saying my boys ever did this, but you go shopping when they're real little and, and out loud they say something like, Mommy, why is that lady so fat? You're like, wow. You know, I just told one of our brothers the other day, you don't have to say everything that comes into your head. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but as you become mature, as you grow, as you become perfect, you learn, right? Some things are better left unsaid. Amen. And what James is saying is, man, if anyone's never at fault with anything, he says, man, then he is the perfect. He's the model, right? But here's the problem. He says this, we all stumble in many ways. That's the problem. Our mouths get us into trouble, don't they? 
I can speak for myself. Unfortunately, we do so too often. And here's the thing, far from, you would think, oh, well, pastors, they have it together, they're more, more mature, so it should be easier for them. But what James is saying, far from being less at risk because we're teachers, preachers, because of our position in the church, actually teachers are more vulnerable because they're speaking all the time. So James gives us two illustrations. Look, I didn't have to go looking in in books for illustrations this week because this whole passage, James is just given illustration after illustration. And that's another interesting thing about preaching on James. These are basically sermons. It's the way James writes. And so we're just going to take a look at a couple of his illustrations here. um, Right here. Look at verses 3 and 4. These are the uh, illustrations he gives to speak about the tongue and its power. We put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Here's the the thing that James is pointing out. Look at the disparity here. Look at how little a bit is. And yet it can control a powerful war horse. It could lead him exactly where you want him to go with that little, you direct him. And James is saying, look, about, look at a ship, man. It's tossed to and fro by the wind and by the waves. And yet that one little thing called a rudder, if you're the pilot, you can easily steer it exactly where you want it to go. And then what, what the analogy here is obvious. He says the tongue is a small, tiny muscle in the body, in the mouth, but it has tremendous power and influence over the entire body. The power of the tongue. And here's the thing. It, he, he tells us at first, but he doesn't spend most of his time here. He does tell us at first that the tongue has Positive power, right? To direct, to lead, to guide. In the tongue is the power of life, Proverbs says. But that's not where he dwells here in this chapter, is it? Right away he deals with the negative effects of the powerful tongue. He says it has power to do tremendous evil and destruction. And look at the next illustration he used. He says, what does it take to set an entire forest aflame. Just a little spark. You remember when I was a kid, remember it was, uh, it was a smoky, you know, people set forest fire. You know, it was just like any little thing does what? A little cigarette, a little spark, it can literally destroy a huge forest. And it can happen just like that. In the same way, he says this. He says it's, it's, it has, the tongue has two is a fire, and it, it is a world of evil among the other parts of the body, and it has devastating power to destroy the rest of the body. Look at what it says. Look at what he says. It corrupts the whole person, says James, and sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Oh, Now we see where those words come from, right? It's satanic. We're in league with him when we use our words to destroy. And here's the thing. It's a pretty grim description of the damaging effects of the misuse of the tongue. 
And at this point, commentators and preachers, and I myself was tempted to say, let me, get, let me show you some examples of how it can destroy families, right? How gossip can hurt a cha- church. How it could separate the closest of people. It could separate a husband and wife. It can affect the community. It can affect the church. But that's not where James goes. Who does he say gets affected when you use these, these awful words and you use your tongue in a destructive way? Guess who? Yourself. That's what he says. It pollutes your whole body. You're the perpetrator and the victim at the same time. That's powerful when I saw that. How much it grieves the true child of God when he knows that his words tore someone down or discouraged a sensitive and a caring soul. Or when you realized, you you didn't even think about it, but you demeaned a brother or sister in Christ so that at, at their expense you look good. There have been times that I've regretted the words that came out of my mouth. As soon as they literally left my lips, I thought, oh, I'd give anything to take that back. But I knew I couldn't. I've seen people's faces. I've seen them wince. I've seen them frown. I've seen them crestfallen. And to realize I did that, that evil came out of me. For a little muscle, James is saying, it can sure cause a whole lot of destruction. So James gets to the last reason not many should presume to be teachers. And that's because man cannot tame the tongue. Stick with me. This is the last thing I want to point out. Look at verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is not an easy text to preach on. Can I get an amen? You know, people talk about being gospel-centered and make sure you tie everything into the gospel. I'm going, James, have mercy. (laughs) But God wouldn't be giving it to us if it wasn't good for us, if we didn't need to hear it, right? But here's the point he's making. We We can make lions jump through hoops. You ever see that? We can make elephants stand on giant beach balls. We can make seals and dolphins do tricks. But none of us can tame this one little thing right here in our mouths. For all, and this, I got to say this, this really hit me. For all our advancements in technology in our day, right, the modern day, all of our advancement in science and medicine, when it comes to taming the tongue, we're among the undeveloped countries. We're back in the dark ages. That shows us how badly we need Jesus. It shows us that man cannot, if you want proof that man can't save himself, just look at that little muscle in your mouth. It's humbling, it's tragic, it's devastating. And it's certainly true of the unredeemed world. But James is more concerned with those who profess faith in Christ, isn't he? He's concerned with those who who profess that they have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're redeemed by his blood. And I'll show you how we know this. Look at verses 9 to 12, the last part of this passage. He's speaking to the brothers. 
With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce, produce fresh water. Look, we sing together, come thou fount of every blessing. Right? Tune my heart to sing thy praise. And the next minute, what do we do? We talk down, beat up, and gossip. A brother or sister in Christ exposes every flaw. Have, have souffle brother for lunch. And James says, what in the world is going on? How can you praise God with this tongue and then a second later tear down your brother when he is made in the image of God? We are the image of God. He made us, male and female, right? And when you talk bad about a brother and sister, when you gossip about a brother and sister, when you curse, right? He says, you got clean water one minute and you got salt water. He's saying, nature doesn't even do that, man. He goes, you can't get, you don't get pure clean water out of the salt water. Nor do you get salt water out of a pure spring. He says, you don't go to a fig tree looking for olives, do you? And then James does something he's been doing uh, more than a handful of times in his epistle. You always got to brace yourself when he says this. My brothers. Because this is where, I always say James is from Jersey. But this is where he's almost from the south here. You know how they say stuff like, oh, bless your heart. And then you know whatever's coming. You're like, oh, boy, it ain't going to be good. Or like a British guy will say, oh, my dear fellow, right? Oh, my good friend. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, he's not going to say something good after this. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, my brothers, this ought not to be. We claim the name of Jesus. We've got to clean up our mouths. And one of the things that's interesting about James throughout this book, and we're going to see it later in chapter 4, he despises the double-minded. He wants us to be singular in our devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants us to be tapped into the Holy Spirit, the new nature, the new man, new woman in Christ, and he wants that to flow out of us in words that build up, not tear down. Words that encourage, not discourage. And even, listen, here's the important thing. Even when we rebuke, because some of us have this lust for justice, but it's really a lust for vengeance. We want to see people pay, even our brothers and sisters in church. Even when we rebuke, it should be corrective. You know, we debate on whether or not we should spank our kids in our modern world, but here's the issue. Whether you believe it or not, and I believe the Bible does teach loving discipline, the point is we do it in a loving way, in a controlled way, not out of anger. It's not, we're not just spewing out our anger and venom. It's a very controlled, loving thing so that they will learn, right? That there are consequences to their actions and they'll grow and they'll be hopefully good and faithful citizens of not only the world, but of God's kingdom. But our problem is we say things like this. We say, I just tell it like it is. I don't care who gets hurt. And James says, you better. You with me? You better care who gets hurt. James wants you to extend the same love that you would want. Does that sound like somebody else? (laughs) To your brothers and sisters. You know how sometimes we do this one too, and I've been guilty, unfortunately. 
Listen, I'm only telling you this as a matter of prayer, just so we could pray about it. I'm hearing laughs because I know some of you have done it with me just like I have. And then we go to talk about, we give all the gory details about what we just heard about a brother and sister, man. We, we have this nice juicy discussion. You know, couldn't we just say, hey, brother John's going through a tough time. Let's lift him up to the Lord. If we really had care for his soul. Remember earlier, James said, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Well, now he says, no one can do it. Whoa. James, where are we going with this? Well, I found one commentator that said something really powerful I want to mention to you. Um, I don't know if I could pronounce his name, but what he said was really cool. George Stulak. He's He's a PCA pastor in Missouri. He said this, I love this. James recognizes that Christians fail in this. He is willing to identify himself with sinful speech. It is something, quote unquote, we do. But to accept it or to tolerate it, instead of being horrified at it and repenting of it, this must not be. You get that? I thought he really put that well. In other words, James says we all stumble in many ways. But if it doesn't grieve us when we do, if it doesn't devastate us, if it doesn't bring us to our knees, begging God to forgive us and cleanse us and make us new, then James, in his, his fashion, like he always says, his style, James would say, is your faith genuine? You really know the Jesus you're claiming to know? If you can cavalierly just chop each other up and not even care? You with me? James, among all writers of Scripture, he wants to see reality in religion. He wants to see us putting our money where our mouth is, as it were. He says, if you really have faith, you're going to what? Have works. Don't merely hear the word, but what? Put it into practice. And here he's saying, if you're really a believer, then make sure that pure spring is coming out of, those mouth, out of that mouth of yours. Now, if we stopped here, it would be kind of discouraging. And I'll tell you why. I've got to be honest. I'm just being honest. Remember, now I, I have to watch myself, right, because I'm going to be judged more strictly. I've got to be honest. I would say, James, thanks for pointing out the problem. <laughs> but, like, isn't there any hope? Isn't there any way you could help me now tame my tongue? Well, here's the good news, and I'm going to give you this good news because I'm glad the Lord showed it to me. And it's this. He says no man can tame the tongue, but he doesn't say, No being, no person can tame the tongue. There is one person. And you know who he is? Not James, but who? who? Jesus. Jesus. The Lord God can tame the tongue. And I'm going to show you, you have to fast forward in the book a little bit. When we had cassette tapes, we would fast forward. Remember those things to get to it? Well, you got to fast forward. I'm going to close with this. James does tell us, he does give us a gospel prescription on how to uh, deal with it when we find that we do stumble in many ways and that we have fallen with our tongues. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, and then we'll close. This is what James says. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. We live in a society today in America where a gospel that is no gospel at all is being preached. It's a gospel that says, God loves you just the way you are. In other words, stay, you could stay that way. That's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is what? The gospel is that God sent His one and only Son. That's right. And what is, God, what is the response God calls for? When Jesus first preached, it says He went out in the Gospel of Mark, He went out and He preached what? Repent and believe the good news. As believers, like Martin Luther brought out, Repentance is not an only one-time thing that we do when we first get saved. Repentance is a way of life. And I'm the kind of guy, and some of you kids know this, I like to fool around a little too much. I like to play around, I like to goof around, and I get myself in trouble with my lips more often than not because I like to have some fun. And I've been in church situations where like every Sunday is like a funeral. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a dirge, you know. And you're like, oh my goodness. So sometimes I've gone too far the other way. Sometimes we need to be sober, amen? Sometimes James says, stop laughing. It's not a laughing matter. Humble yourself, right? Humble ourselves so God doesn't have to do it because he will. The good news is he gives more grace. Ah. So brothers and sisters, take very seriously that little muscle that's in our mouths. Submit it to God, and, and by His grace, you will see progress. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this word, this timely word. And from the heart, we do ask for Your forgiveness. We know we all stumble in many ways. We don't say that flippantly. We don't say that uh, like, oh well. We say that with broken hearts, Lord. Forgive us for... Um, just hurting others with our lips and defiling ourselves by saying things that are just unholy. We thank you, Father, that you are always willing to forgive. We thank you that you lead us to repentance and we thank you that these words are meant to purify us so that more and more we would be like you and more and more we would control our tongues, Lord, and practice good religion that you accept that's pure in your sight. So, Lord, we commit these tongues to you, asking for the forgiveness of our sins. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.